Our scripture tonight is 1 John 3.19 through 4.6. 1 John 3.19 through 4.6. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. 1 John 3.19 to 4.6. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what happens when a true child of God doesn't feel like a child of God? Well, the truth doesn't change. There's no eraser in the universe so powerful enough to remove a name from the book of life. So the spirit of truth will always win out in this life or the next. But it may get disorienting for a time if I look at the man in the mirror and I've been asking him to change his ways for so long, but the only thing I see in the reflection looking back at me is condemnation. What happens when the weight of my sin is heavy and as I consider the pain I've caused my parents or the consternation I've put my children through or the neglect I've made my spouse endure or the weak faith and obedience that I've given to God. And when I consider these things, what happens when that weight becomes unbearable? So far, John has been telling us that in times like this, we have an advocate with the Father in Christ. And typically, if we are participating in the normal means of grace, that is, if we're gathering with the saints on Sundays and hearing afresh the message that you've heard from the beginning— We have the opportunity to regularly affirm our faith and to fellowship with and love other Christians. And when we do, confidence is a natural byproduct. Within the church, we have the opportunity to hear the spirit of truth through the word of God. And as it rings true in us, we affirm with an amen in our hearts and we grow in confidence that we are Christ's sheep who hear his voice. The concluding verse of our passage states this plainly. And when we have the opportunity to love one another in deed and in truth, 
we are emulating the Son who accomplished and endured all that he did in the flesh, and therefore we show ourselves to be of the same spirit of truth that he is. And the first verse of our passage states this plainly. Therefore, even though we're all still in the process of shedding the worldliness of our flesh, we need not despair. By the spirit of truth, we may have confidence in our union with Christ. And yet, what happens when we despair anyway? What if I don't feel that union because I've strained my fellowship with God and I don't see myself as being part of the kingdom of heaven? Maybe the despair is momentary as I ungraciously kick myself for some individual moral failure. Or maybe the despair is prolonged and my life feels like it's in slow motion and sinking in the slew of despond. Well, tonight, John wants us to consider that if I look at my life and I'm having a hard time with truthfully confessing that I am growing and becoming anything like Jesus, it's time to go back to the basics and just focus on confessing that Jesus is Jesus. And I need to talk with God honestly and frankly in prayer, and I need to listen to his word. If you're growing with Christ, and your good confession is, is turning into loving your sisters and brothers more and more, and that love is snowballing into greater confidence of your union with Christ, fantastic. More power to you. And that's what this book is all about. But if looking at your progress in Christ is discouraging you, and more than encouraging you, you have to take a step back and focus on the unwavering truth. <clears throat> in the first verse of our passage, then, in verse 319, John begins... By this, that is, by loving one another in deed and truth from verse 18, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And again, great. This is hopefully where most of us are. But in verse 20 we read, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now, there are times when I may condemn myself, and I'm being unfair to myself. If you grew up with maybe hard-to-please parents or you've had a hard-to-please spouse or a boss, you may have developed a natural proclivity toward beating yourself up like this. And sometimes it takes a friend to come alongside you and say, look, I was there. I don't know what else you could have done. You did the best you could, but it still turned out bad. And in those kinds of circumstances, God, too, knows all about it even better than your encouraging friend, and that can be a huge comfort. But that's not so much what verse 20 is talking about. This is more like, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, and your advocate is not arguing that you are innocent. He's arguing that you are guilty, but your crimes have been paid for. God knows everything. He knows how bad your sin is better than you do. But he also knows, and he never forgets, that the blood of his son is more than enough to wipe away your clean slate and give you a clean slate. Alcohol will not drown away your guilt. The sweet lies of a friend telling you that you aren't that bad, they won't cut it. And no religion telling you that to balance the scales of your life with good deeds can ever make your bad deeds disappear. Only the one true God 
who has made the Son his only Christ is greater than my heart when it condemns me. And equally as important, only God who is able to come to the aid of those whom we have hurt is greater than our hearts when they condemn us. Because in and of itself, no apology to our neighbor absolves us or instantly makes those that we have hurt better. This is a truth that is often painfully obvious to those who are genuinely contrite in heart and is veiled from the narcissist who believes that forgiveness and the quick forgetting of his sin is something owed to him just because he uttered the words, I'm sorry. When we hurt someone and apologize, it does not immediately heal the other person's psyche, even if they forgive you. Trust issues may remain that can take a great deal of time to restore and may never be restored on this side of heaven. Only the God who can come alongside a victim in this life and for eternity and say that injustice is injustice and there's no excuse for it can, and can wipe away every tear and give them a future where the sorrows of this life are not worthy to be compared with the joys of the next, only that God is greater than our sin. This is the God who can step into the life of a sinner, beating himself up or herself up with condemnation, and calm the storm within. Because since God can heal those who you have hurt, and since he looks at the Son as your advocate, who then can bring a charge against you? When this is your God, letting go and forgiving yourself is not an injustice. It is not making light of your sin. It is acknowledging how great our Savior God really is. When Martin Luther, who wrote the first hymn that we sang tonight, uh, by the way, when he preached through 1 John, he had this to say about verse 20. Even if our conscience makes us faint-hearted and presents God as angry, still God is greater than our heart. Conscience is one drop The reconciled God is a sea of comfort. The fear of conscience or despair must be overcome even though it is difficult. It is a great and exceedingly sweet promise that if our heart blames us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Christians, God is kinder to you than you are to yourself. You may kick yourself and mumble under your breath at what a fool you've been for this or that, but God never does. And this leads into verse 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before him, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all is also graciously willing to give us all spiritual things that we ask for. Now, a couple of notes here, one minor and one major. First, if there's any uh, grammar sticklers among us, the use of our heart may be a little bit distracting. This is an odd and wooden translation in English, and there's really no good reason why it couldn't be rendered if our hearts do not condemn us. This is more natural English, and if that scratches an itch, feel free to read it that way. I know we have at least one uh, grammarian among our pews. Second and more relevant to the meaning of the passage, confidence here may be more literally understood as boldness. This book is about assurance and confidence, so it's no wonder that confidence is used here, and it's not wrong. 
But the underlying idea here, really, is that when petitioning God in prayer, you have permission to speak freely. This is the God that is greater than your condemnation of yourself and knows everything. So speak in a way that seeks to conceal nothing. Be outspoken and frank and plain. Because especially for the saint struggling in the midst of unsurety, who the spirit of truth is in but veiled, nothing but candid dialogue with God is going to be of help. So speak freely. In the Gospel of John, this word is commonly used uh, for openness and frankness rather than confidence. In John 7, for example, we read, While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And John 10 says, The Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the word there used. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. So the idea here is that we ought to draw near to the throne of grace with boldness and honesty and frankness despite our sinful pasts and in the light of our great Savior so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. See, with this idea of frankness and plainness, John is leaning into the idea that what Christians who fear themselves slipping to rock bottom need to understand is that the truth of Christ, indeed the spirit of truth, is the rock that they will land on despite themselves. And the spirit of truth is fueled uh, as fuel by which broken relationships blossom. So the relationship basics that the unsteady soul needs to return to God with will be soaked in truth. Getting to know again the great and gracious, who the great and gracious Savior truly is. Speaking with him frankly and listening and earnestly understanding his word. Condemnation loses its sting when all of our secrets are known and God says, I can love you just the way you are. And communication in any relationship is better when it's frank. But particularly in prayer, honesty is highly appropriate when speaking with the God who knows all. Now John goes on in verse 22 to qualify that frankness in prayer is not some magic password that lets us whisper whatever it is we want to God because we've never had a friend like him. So John adds that we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. If you want to see your prayers answered more, meditate on God's word that you will and may become more in line with his. And this applies, of course, to all of God's commands. But in 1 John, the whole of the law is often summarily presented to us as a twofold commandment. Verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. And just as frankness does not make God a, a, wishing, a wish-granting genie, neither does speaking the name of Jesus as if it's some password. There is indeed no other name among heaven by which men may be saved, but the name we speak needs to correlate to the person of the Son of God, incarnate in the flesh. Mormons calling their Savior Jesus when in reality they secretly mean that, that he is one God of many that happens to rule this world, that does not put the one true God in a listening mood. 
and Muslims calling their prophet Jesus but denying that he is the Son of God come in the flesh also does not please God. The idea here is that just as God has revealed himself covenantally as Elohim to Adam, as El Shaddai to Abraham, and as Yahweh Elohim to Moses, and as his people then called on his name to claim the rights of their covenant relationship with God, so too we we know and trust our covenant relationship with God by the name of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. He is the king by which we all have confidence that God is greater than our sin because he came in the flesh as our perfect sacrifice, offering himself up once and for all and declaring that it is finished. Our new covenant treaty formula here is is so elegantly concise, we may easily miss it. But it wouldn't have been missed by first century, uh, by John's first century audience because it echoes Exodus 20. Israel under Moses had, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And we have, believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, because he has brought us out of our slavery of sin and the curse. And where Exodus 20 continues on with the rest of the Ten Commandments, we simply have here in our covenant document, and love one another. Because Paul tells us in Romans, the one who loves fulfills the law. This is our sophisticatedly concise new covenant in Christ, succinct and yet exploding with the spirit of truth, which reveals that God is greater than any Christian heart that may slip into a season of condemning itself. In verse 24, then, we then read, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, this whole thought process is linked to the words of of Jesus in John 14, where in verses 15 to 17 and 23, you can really hear some connections. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. But if anyone loves you, verse 23, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So whereas God has previously covenanted and dwelt with his people in tents and tabernacles and temples, by the spirit of truth who dwells in and with us, the Father and Son make their home with us. Now, a home is many things, but in its essence, you can always find two things in a home, a family and cooking. And in a home where the Father and the Son abide with the children of God by the spirit of truth, The pleasing aroma of good works are always being cooked up and continually wafting from the kitchen. And the recipe ingredients of those good works by which we love one another are God's commands. The smells of tried-and-true recipes often fill the air, and there are also fresh aromas where new recipes are being tried with new ways of putting together the ingredients of love. And as we think on this, It's quite delightful to consider a subtle tweak from the Mosaic Covenant formula in Exodus 20 to the Believe and Love formula in the New Covenant. And that is the switch 
in our primary covenant document here from the negative to the positive in God's commands. Now, to be sure, there are plenty of commandments throughout the Old Testament that give a positive imperatives and exhortations to love. But in the Ten Commandments, the don't do this and don't do that are pretty repetitious. At least in Sunday school, in a quick overview, you may give us the impression that the primary way that we are to emulate God morally is to refrain from things. We may also get this impression from Adam and Eve's choice between partaking of two different trees, as if the main thing that we are to do as God's people is to not do things. But when we really think about it, this isn't the case at all. We are called to behold and enjoy so much more than what we are called to avoid. Adam and Eve had literally everything else in the garden to enjoy, and the one thing they weren't supposed to partake of was wrapped up in lies and pseudo-pleasures. And actually, Christian theologians have traditionally recognized that God commands are primarily positive guidelines on how to worship God and glorify him properly and love our neighbor and our brother. So by studying God's commands, we can fill our hearts and minds with manifold ways that we, that we may have fullness of joy in loving God and loving one another. God's law is not merely there so that we can sit on the dock of the bay wasting time and have something for us to think about not doing. His good commands are rich and varied and wonderful, like the ingredients of a family who loves to cook delights in. The great historic confessions of faith all pick up and unpack this reality when they deep dive into the Ten Commandments and bring out the positive side of each command. And so if you ever are looking for some fresh ingredients to cook up some fresh works of loving others, something like the Westminster Catechism is a great resource. If we look there at the Sixth Commandment, to not murder, for example, we'll pick that since last week we unpacked the heart of Cain a bit, and he is the poster child for a heart that competes rather than loves his brother. If we look at questions 135 and 136 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, we find that 135 asks what the duties are required in the Sixth Commandment before question 136 tells us about what the command forbids. So not only does it give us the positive and the negative, but it puts the positive first. And like the entertainments of Bilbo Baggins at his 110th birthday party, the list of things to enjoy here is prolonged and varied. It takes 25 Bible verses citations as proof text to support all the contemplations and commands supplied here to get cooking on loving one another by being the kind of Christian who has a mind to preserve life rather than take it. Listen to this and consider that this is just one commandment of ten, and all of these commands and every other command in the Bible is eloquently summarized in believing in the name of Christ and loving your neighbor. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to persevere the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any. By just defense, therefore, against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, 
a sober use of meat, drink, exercise, sleep, labor, and recreations. By charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and returning good for evil, comforting and assisting the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. That is a lot more to think about and work with than just don't murder. And so for the delicate conscience, the path back to confidence is wide open. Stop kicking yourself. God is greater than your sin. Speak to God frankly. And when you do, ask him to help you do some of this stuff, praying that you might grow to love life and be a better preserver of it. This is a prayer that God will answer. And by the way, for the heart condemning itself, suicide may be floating around as an ideation. But you may have noticed that preserving the life of ourselves was near the top of that list. Your life is precious. You are made in the image of God, and it is not for you to murder yourself in anger and condemnation. So, meditating on both the negative and positive aspects of God's commands can greatly affect your prayer life. And this, in turn, can bolster your confidence that the spirit of truth is working in you, properly redecorating your heart as a fitting home for the Father and the Son to abide in. But every heart does not have the spirit of truth sanctifying it. And so not every heart is a suitable dwelling for the Father and the Son. And yet some of these toxic hearts who claim to know the Father and the Son with you are liars. And the works they cook up are dangerous and toxic, particularly for those with a delicate conscience who have a tendency to be condemned by God's law rather than merely convicted and spurred by grace to do better. And so we read in verse 4-1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see or discover whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here we are soberly reminded to test everything and hold fast to what is good. Christians need to be wisely aware that faith by itself is not a virtue unless it is applied to someone who is faithful. Unbelief can be just as much of a mark of spiritual maturity as belief. We are called to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and so at times we should avoid superstitiously believing anything that is presented to us as spiritual, and at other times we must avoid being overly suspicious and missing out on the truth. It is good to be charitable when discussing Jesus with other faith backgrounds, but we don't want to be so open-minded that our brains fall out. And so for Christians, and especially those who are struggling with an excessive burden of guilt, John gives the most foundational, basic of basic tests of discernment, which would take a blatant false prophet or a cult leader or a straight-up antichrist like John warned us about in chapter 2 to fail. In verses 4, 2, and 3, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and every, spirit, and every spirit that does not confess is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming 
and now is in the world already. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, John already let us in on the reality that in this last hour of redemptive history, with the light of new creation streaming in and scattering the darkness, many antichrists have already been exposed in this light. Many have fled the spotlight that good churches rooted in the word of God and the spirit of truth have shined on them. They've left the church and they've gone out into the world where they can get away with more. They can preach in churches with poor church discipline and that are allergic to historic confessions of faith, or they can just hop on social media with absolutely no accountability whatsoever. But John doesn't want any of us to be learning Christ from such churches churches or false prophets or social media influencers, because there is no power to save in the spirit of error that they spew. They have nothing that can justly declare sinners righteous because they don't have the Christ of God in the flesh. And without the name of this Jesus to call on, the self-condemning soul is actually not wrong. Self-condemnation is not incorrect because it's bad for our self-esteem or because deep down we're all good people who deserve a second chance. No one is good but God, and sinners do in fact deserve the curse of the law if they are not joined to Christ. So outside of Jesus, hitting on rock bottom is not landing on the unshakable rock of truth, that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. Unless one has Christ, their Redeemer, the rock that they will land on will be Christ, the judge, and he will scatter them to pieces on the last day in perfect justice, and they will have no excuse and no advocate. But while the world has not overcome these liars that teach that there can be any hope for sinners apart from Jesus living and dying in the flesh on our behalf, John concludes, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So then, what happens when the true child of God does not feel like a child of God? Well, we have to be honest and careful here because there are genuine Christians who lose their way and don't appear to get it together by the end of their life and passing on into glory. And we do not believe that if a Christian's last days are sinful or laden with wavering faith that Christ was incorrect when he said, it is finished. All of the Christian sins, past, present, and future, are nailed to the cross. And so the reality is the self-condemning Christian will do one of two things. To some degree, they will get back to the basics and focus on Christ rather than themselves. They will begin to talk again with God in prayer, frankly, and they will listen to the spirit of truth and grow again in confidence. Or they won't, and they will leave some of us behind unsure what to think. And just like we have pleaded for them to do before the end, we too, then, need to look at Christ instead of their faith and their deeds and know that Jesus, who came in the flesh, can save to the uttermost 
even those who finish poorly. And the spirit of truth, who has made a home for the Father and the Son, does not duck out of the elect. The spirit of truth remains, even if he is grieved. He is no fair-weather friend. And one day we will meet many in the air who overcame, though the end of their life may have caught them in a rough patch. May we praise God, then, that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And may we utilize the normal means of grace to their fullest while we have the opportunity. And may we pray for and come alongside those who may be struggling. Amen.